0: I'm James Jacobson. Thanks for listening to The Long Leash. Today, we are going to introduce you to Peter Rourke. He is an orthopedic surgeon and a pilot who flies shelter dogs over the western mountain ranges so that they can get to their forever homes. Now, I first interviewed Dr. Rourke for a segment we did on Dog Edition. If you haven't heard that, you should. It's a beautiful portrait. But we're bringing you this extended conversation with Peter Rourke because I think it's fascinating. He is a study in contrast. Here is a man's man, a pilot at the age of 17 who put himself through medical school, became an orthopedic surgeon, a man who's always been in charge of his environment. But today, in retirement from medicine, his environment is filled with lonely shelter dogs and long flights with just him in crates and crates and crates of dogs flying long distances over mountain ranges in the west listening to country music this tough guy has a soft heart a heart i think you will love dr peter Rourke, thank you for being with us today i'm so glad to have you on dog edition
1: yes thank you so much for having me
0: now where are you located right now you look very comfortable Yeah, I'm in
1: Jacksonville, Wyoming. I'm looking at a storm coming in that's going to drop a little snow on
0: us tonight. I was delighted when I asked you when we first connected. You said, How are you doing? And you said, Best day of my life. And is that a a mantra or is that a frame of mind that you've been using for a while? Uh, It's a frame of mind. Yeah. Adopted it a couple of years ago, taking pieces
1: of my broken life and putting it back together. And it's, It's coming together better than I
0: had hoped. Tell me a little bit about that story.
1: Well, I was living the dream. I was the knee surgeon uh, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, orthopedic surgery. Had uh, met a beautiful woman who I had actually seen in magazines before I even met her. And uh, she was a print and runway model. She had a knee injury, came in to see me with her boyfriend, and... He also had a knee injury, but I guess he wanted to test out my skills on her first. To make a long story short, I did her surgery, did his surgery. They did fine. I would see them and follow up. And about a year later, I was going to be flying through Cody, Wyoming, on the way to my lake house in Montana. And I would always meet them at the airport and check out their knees and come to find out that... Uh, Meg was no longer with her boyfriend and had moved to Denver. And I said, well, gosh, I'm going to be in Denver watching the Cubs play the Colorado Rockies in about two weeks. You want to join me for a game? And it was just kind of a friendly thing. And so we got together and it was, uh, well, it was a great next uh, two years. We uh, lived together, thought we could really make it a go. Got married on leap year day of 2012. And then uh, she sadly died about two months later of a cardiac arrest. And it just, it crushed me. I mean, I went to a tailspin and for months, I mean, it was, it was a really dark place. So uh, we had a mutual friend who was a neighbor of hers in Cody who called me and said, uh, you know, Peter, Meg would want you to be happy. Now that was in just contrast that, if I had gone before she did, I, I wanted her to be that beautiful woman in that black dress, just crying her eyes out. And after the funeral, go join the nunnery. <laughs> and honestly, if they had taken men in the nunnery, I, I mean, I, had, I was lost. I, I didn't know what to do. So she and I had done a couple of rescue flights together. And she was really the animal lover, huge animal lover. I didn't need any help in that department. And it was, I was really jazzed that she was feeling that same way too. So I did a couple of rescue flights and I just started feeling things coming back. So I reached out to a good friend of mine, Judy Zimmett, who's an attorney and practices in Scottsdale, Arizona. I knew her from having started a previous nonprofit up in Montana So she obtained the 501C3 for me, and I started flying as the nonprofit. And initially, it was, you know, fly one animal here and feel good about it. And it was the same thing that I did for a couple of years up to that point. I really had no idea. I thought it was get a dog from A to B and go home, and it was happy hour. And so I was actually uh, asked by the Animal Adoption Center in Jackson, Wyoming to bring dogs in from San Francisco. So I flew out to San Francisco and I had lunch with the head of the San Francisco SPCA, Marty Watts. And uh, Marty said, what you're doing for Jackson is really a good thing. But if you really wanna be part of the solution, I have someone that you have to meet. So she introduced me to Sharon Lohman and Sharon runs a nonprofit animal rescue group called New Beginnings in Merced, Central Valley of California. And they had an incredibly high euthanasia rate. And it's through no fault of the facility. I mean, they're completely overrun. They can either adopt them out, they can transport them, or sadly, they could uh, euthanize them. So not many were being adopted. Sharon would pull what she could and put them in a van and drive them to Portland or Seattle to Missoula, to Salt Lake City, to Denver, and then the rest didn't make it out. And the number was over 90% didn't make it out. So that was on the 4th of September of 2012, and it completely changed the direction of what I was doing. Instead of the feel-good thing about me flying a dog from A to B and feeling good about myself, I saw that there was a real need, and I had the time, I had the skills. And I had the resources. and I said, "Sharon, those long drives, 14, 16 hours with 20 dogs in the back, and understand that they don't stop every three hours and let the dogs out to pee. Once they're in the crate, they're in the crate until they get to the destination. And the people can't stop and say, "Oh, we're tired. We're going to spend the night in a hotel with 20 or 30 dogs in the back of the van. It just doesn't work that way. So they drive straight through, turn around, drive straight back load up the van, and then they're off again. So I said, Sharon, I'll do that for you. So I started flying for her. I think I flew 30 flights for her that first year from September to the end of the year. And fortunately for Sharon and for me, it was California was having an El Nino. And so there was no weather at all, just bluebird skies all winter long. I have a brother who lives in South Shore Tahoe. They got no snow. For their ski areas, they were all suffering. But the ones that weren't suffering were the dogs that I was now saving. So I did that for a year, maybe a year and a half. And then, of course, Sharon, and I don't blame her for this, I mean, she wanted to keep me her own secret. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be flying for anybody else. Well, the receiving groups started blabbing and they say, you know, we've got this crazy guy with an airplane who's got a 501c3. He'll fly the animals long distance and he doesn't charge anything. So we started getting inundated. And, and at that point, Judy Zimmet had stepped in as the executive director and, and she was my wingman. And
0: Judy was the attorney who formed the... Judy
1: was the attorney who helped me form the organization. Okay. And so she was my wingman. And I say that in a gender neutral way. All right. We don't send any, any nasty emails. <laughs> So we started branching out. We started flying for the other cities in the central valley of California, which would be Modesto and Stockton. We went down to Bakersfield. We went down to Lancaster. We were flying out of Long Beach. And then she saw a picture in the newspaper in in the um, Arizona Gazette or whatever it is. 15 or 20 dogs that were dead lying on the floor of a facility in Roswell, New Mexico. Because every Friday, if the kennels were full, these people were going home for the weekend and they would take care of the problem. So she reached out to the Roswell group and she said, could you fly a rescue flight for these folks? So I flew over to Roswell and it was the craziest scene. So when I pulled up in the aircraft, the airport surrounded the aircraft with fuel trucks. So the media there couldn't take pictures of what was going on and uh, they were bringing dogs out. And it's always a challenge when I work the first time with the rescue group, because they don't have a lot of resources. They are desperate for anything. So if the only crate they have is a crate the size of a Great Dane and it's a Chihuahua, that's what they bring the dog in. And you have to understand that those crates can really bulk out the aircraft and take up all the space. So we left a lot of dogs behind that day, which is really sad because you asked them to start playing Sophie's Choice. Who's going to get on the plane and who's not going to get on the plane? Who's going back to the shelter and who's going to be euthanized? Thank God I don't have to make that choice because it would kill me. But uh, that's what we did. But we kind of fine tuned it. And uh, then we started flying for Hobbs and then we started flying for cities out of Texas and Arizona. And you have to understand that the facilities that are overrun can't put the animals in a van and drive them three hours to another facility because those facilities are in the same boat. They have the same problem. You have to get them a thousand miles away before the problem begins disappearing. So you can draw a line between Denver and Salt Lake City. The farther south you go, the worse it is. The farther north you go the better it is. And so that's our long distance connection. So we have three things that are written into our prime directive, to borrow a phrase from Star Trek. (laughs) That's right. We live long and prosper. I don't even know how to do it with my (laughs) (laughs) hand. Whatever. So we only fly from nonprofit to nonprofit because we're constantly getting requests to fly some MinPin from Miami to Los Angeles for Aunt Betty or, And, you know, we're just not going to do that. We only fly from the facilities that use euthanasia as one of their tools to a non. I was criticized recently for saying non-kill, but I don't think there's a better way to put it.
0: No-kill shelter. Yeah.
1: Right. So we fly from the kill to the non-kill. Yeah. Right. If you don't like the phrase, come up with a better one for me. I'll use it. And we never charge. We never charge the senders. We never charge the receivers. The sending groups are... You know, they can really stretch a dollar. You know, it's amazing what they do. And they're terrific. Everybody that I work with is terrific. So we started doing that. And then about four years into it, I was working at a flight at a Merced. And one of the gentlemen who always helped me, he's former Air Force pilot, Daryl Kirby. So he would always help me load the aircraft. And I was flying a Cessna 206 at the time, which was a six-seater And I had removed all the seats. And if we were careful and the crates were small, we could put 20 or 30 animals on board. So he says, you know, Peter, don't you think you should go in and check the weather one last time? So that sneaky bastard. So I go in and I check the weather and he slides my seat all the way forward so we can get more crates in. So now the aircraft is full, including the seat to the right. Yes, my knees were up to my chest (laughs) and I am just miserable. Now, remember... I'm not flying 45 minutes getting out and unloading dogs. I'm flying from Merced to Seattle. That's five hours. I mean, I was cursing this guy under my breath and oh my gosh. So I get home after that flight and my oldest daughter, Taylor, who's also general counsel for Dog is my co-pilot, just as smart as can be, holy smokes. So she says, dad, how's the flight? I said, it sucked. She says, what do you mean it sucked? She says, you love doing those flights. And I explained to her what had happened. And she says, dad, for a year, you've been talking about getting a larger airplane. Just do it. I said, you know, we can't afford it. She says, just do it. You'll find a way. So I knew the airplane that we needed. I wanted to buy a Cessna Caravan, which is the same aircraft uh, that FedEx uses for their short haul. It's a Single engine turbine, it's got the high wing, the struts, got a lot of metal hanging out. It's not built for speed. It's built for hauling the mail, hauling the cargo. Caravan. Yeah, it's not a Dodge Caravan, it's a Cessna (laughs) Caravan. So uh, actually, when I frequently have people pick up the crates at the airport when I'm delivering, they're driving a Dodge Caravan. I can hold four times what they can in the aircraft. So in any event, I mean, these aircraft cost two and a half million dollars per copy. New and more. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had to buy one. The used ones are on the market for a million and a half. They really hold on to their value. So this was just, it was outside of our price range. So I contacted a broker and he went looking. He went shopping and there was a mining company up in Canada that had a caravan. They were closing their flight department. It had 17,000 hours on the airframe. They flew it in and out of unimproved airstrips all the time. It was all beat to hell. The interior was ripped up. But the Canadian CAA, the Canadian Aviation Authority, is very particular about how an aircraft is maintained. And this aircraft was maintained just as well as anyone in the entire world. So I went up there. We went through the logbooks. The engine was in perfect running condition, which made me happy. And I looked at the airplane and it was a real eyesore. It all beat up, torn up. And I looked at it, I said, perfect. It's (laughs) perfect. The dogs don't care what it looks like. I care how it flies. I said, I'll buy it. And so the organization, I mean, anybody who runs a nonprofit knows that nonprofit means exactly that, no profit. And we were running deeply in the red at that point. I was still reaching deep into my pocket every month to keep us wheels up. And I knew the nonprofit couldn't afford to buy it, but I wanted the aircraft to be owned by the nonprofit. I didn't wanna be the owner loaning it to it the way I did with my first aircraft. So I mortgaged my house, got the money, loaned it to the nonprofit. They purchased the aircraft and we didn't even have a plan well, how are we going to pay this back? I mean, uh, we didn't even have a plan on how to do that, but I said, you know what? My daughter Taylor says it'll work out. And if it doesn't, I'll wring her little neck. <laughs> so, um, we bought the aircraft and interestingly, I had never been in a caravan before I had never flown a turbine before, oh, wow. but I knew I had the skills as a pilot. I've been flying forever. And, uh, I mean, I look at some of these pilots who were flying them and I'm thinking, well, I don't say if they can do it. How difficult can it be? <laughs> I mean, you could train a monkey to fly one of these things. So I went to flight safety. They trained me how to do it. I started flying the aircraft and we went from flying a uh, thousand dogs a year, doing 40, 42 flights a year in the stationary, the 206 to now this year we'll fly 55 flights. and close to 4,000 animals. The next year, we're budgeted for 70 flights. And so we'll probably be flying five or 6,000 animals. Now, up to this point, I've been doing all the flying myself. And honestly, I was getting a little tired. So um, the Petco Foundation made a generous grant to us last year. And so with that, I immediately went out and I put an ad in getpilotsjobs.com. And every pilot who had ever wanted to be all piloty and, you know, fly in a big airplane and, you know, guys with weeks of experience and, like, dozens of hours. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't let you drive my car, let alone fly this million-dollar airplane. <laughs> so uh, as it turned out, I was able to find three guys who volunteered their time, two of them who live in the immediate area here in Jackson. And one guy who lives down in Southern California who works for the Air Force flying drones, and he works six months on, six months off, and uh, he used to fly a caravan for a living. And so these guys have been the perfect fit. So between the three of them, they're flying about 50% of all the missions, and I'll I'll still fly about half of that. And honestly, it has really given me my second win, where I now look forward to these rescue flights again. When before, I mean, I was flying four or five days a week. I get two days off with my dogs and I'm back. I'm gone again. And uh, that's not exactly how I envisioned my retirement, but I knew I was doing good. So that's where we are. So we also got a new paint job on the aircraft and it's like a flying billboard now. I mean, it's a it's a single use airplane strictly for hauling animals. All the seats are out. I mean, honestly, you look over your shoulder into the cabin of the aircraft, I think you could put a bowling alley back there. I mean, there's so much room.
0: How long is it? What's the interior? How long is the interior? It's 16 feet okay. in length
1: yeah. that I can stack the crates in, and it's about four and a half feet tall. So it's uh, we can stack them in, and I've become a Tetris master because... <laughs> I mean, I can't believe how many different size crates there are. I remember sitting in a mall once and watching people walk by and watching how many different colors of shirts there were and different patterns. I think the same thing about dog crates. There must be a thousand different sizes and stuff. Everybody wants to build a better mousetrap, I suppose. So I always jam them in. But there are a couple things that I learned when I went from the small aircraft to the large aircraft. With the small aircraft, i put 20 crates in, take off from Merced, drop them off in Seattle and go home. Now that I'm carrying 120 crates with 150 or up to 200 animals on a flight, I can't fly them to one destination and someone says, okay, thank you for these 200 animals. It overwhelms them just as it does the sender. So it requires a number of stops or a large number of receiving groups. So for example, last week, I did a flight out of Laredo, Texas. Now, that's a long flight. That's our longest flight that we do because it takes so long to get down there. It really stretches our resources. How long a flight? It takes uh, seven hours to get there. Wow, okay. Yeah, and that's from Jackson. So I flew from Laredo to Fort Collins in Colorado, to Rock Springs in Wyoming, to Logan in Utah, Salt Lake City then up to driggs idaho and jackson hole wyoming and then up to Poulson, montana and so you can imagine that uh, when you look in the back of this aircraft and it's packed full of crates you know you're scratching your head where do they get off and that was my first challenge knowing where to leave the correct crates for the correct groups at the correct airport because out of 150 crates The other thing I didn't recognize was that when I'm taking off from an area, say, in Laredo or El Paso or Odessa or Abilene or Dallas, where it's kind of humid, I've got 150 panting dogs in the back of that airplane and everything in the cockpit, including all my instruments, fog up. So I'm constantly wiping these things, you know, the instruments down. I can't even see outside. So until the defroster will kick in, and then I have half a chance. So what we've devised, we've devised a kind of a backward system where the last out or the first in, every airport has a different colored tag that I can see hanging from the front of the tag. And on the back of the tag, they have the receiving group information and the dog information that they'll need to keep them straight. Now, during the summer, when it's warm out because the aircraft is not air conditioned and nor does it need to be because we're flying above 10,000 feet all the time. And remember, you lose two degrees centigrade for every 1,000 feet or three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. So it might be 90 degrees on the ground. It's in the mid 50s or high 40s up in the air. But once you get on the ground, it heats up pretty quickly. So we typically start around four in the morning loading the aircraft at our origin. And then I'm wheels up by five, but it starts getting warmer as the day goes on. And so the crews are, they're kind of like the NASCAR pit crew. Those dogs come out of there very rapidly. They get out of the way of the aircraft and I'm off. And so I typically spend 30 minutes or less at each stop, even when I'm taking on fuel to get them back in the air where it's nice and cool and getting on to the next destination. So we run a very tight schedule. We're usually plus or minus three minutes at each stop. We're pretty accurate about it. Of course, we have a GPS and that helps us. And the person who keeps it all straight, four years ago, Judy left the organization as the executive director because her law practice just got too busy. She had to give up the reins. And I've been working with a gal, Kara Pollard, who was running the Animal Adoption Center in Jackson. And honestly... You know, I know the Bible says you're not allowed to covet anything, but I, <laughs> I coveted her. <laughs> I wanted her to be the next executive director. And when she quit the Animal Adoption Center to uh, have children after a year or two, she started getting stir crazy again. And I heard about that through the grapevine because, you know, the animal rescue world is a very tight knit group. And so I reached out to her, and I asked her if she might be interested in the job. And I knew her husband, Mark. I had met Mark years before I met Kara, because as an orthopedic surgeon, I did his knee surgery back in the mid-90s or something like that, and uh, just the nicest guy in the world. So I didn't know what their concept of family was or, you know, with the babies or whatever. So I was expecting the worst, and she said, "I'd love to take the job." And I thought, "Oh my God, my prayers are answered." So during our flying season, which starts with daylight saving time and ends with daylight saving time, she's in front of her computer and on her phone ten hours a day. It's just amazing coordinating in flights, and I'm constantly sending her text messages, bringing her up to speed, letting her know where I am, what I'm doing, how the dogs are doing. She'll then keep the receiving groups apprised of our situation. So if we are running ahead of schedule or if we're being a little tardy, she'll inform them. So there's no waste of time. The thing with me, of course, is that I'm responsible for the animals on the airplane. And if somebody ever uh, receiving group, and this doesn't happen with any of the groups we're working with now, because we called the ones that for whom they, they considered this maybe their second calling. And, you know, if I arrive at the airport and they're still 20 minutes away, I mean, these folks are sitting on a hot ramp and I'm burning up time and they're bumping back the entire schedule. And honestly, there are no second bites at the apple with me on that. It's just too important. And I was raised with, you know, if you can't be on time, be 30 minutes early. And so that's how I expect people to be involved with in the animal rescue, and 99% of them are. I'm not sure that the job attracts the type, but they know when they're dealing with Peter Rourke that you don't want to get the look. My nurses used to say, why, when you get angry, you get the look. I said, what does that look like? She says, well, we can't describe it, but we know it when we see it. I said, okay, that's fine. So our typical day is loading at four in the morning, wheels up around five. We make our stops, and I like to get to the, the last stop by 3 or 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon for a couple reasons. One, once I get to that last stop, I then have to fly home, and uh, I don't like flying at night over the mountains, because keep in mind, our routes will either take us over the Rocky Mountains, the Sierra Madres, or the Cascades. And if you think about it, flying over the mountains at night in a single-engine airplane, I mean, what possibly could go wrong? So, yeah.
0: Are you instrument-rated? Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: I have an ATP, airline transport pilot. But even so, you know, the running joke is that if you're flying in the mountains at night and you lose your engine, as you start gliding down, right before you land, you turn on your landing light. And if you don't like what you see, you turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, but the other issue is that when I drop the dogs off at that last stop, that's just the start of the day for the receiving groups. They have hours of work in front of them. And I don't want to drop dogs at eight o'clock at night and they're working until one in the morning. And it's not good for the dogs to be in the airplane for that long. So uh, that's our typical day. So currently we're drawing our dogs. Texas, they have a big problem. And it's an economic issue and it's an issue of education. And so we're drawing our animals from Dallas, Odessa, Abilene, El Paso, Laredo, Hobbs, New Mexico. We occasionally draw out of, um, Arizona, the Phoenix area. And then the rest of them come out of California, the Central Valley of California, Merced primarily. We do uh, one flight a month out of the L.A. basin, out of Ben Ice. And then we fly them north. And that first leg is is a long leg. But then there are typically a lot of short legs after that. Once we get them out of that circle where facilities are in the same boat as they are, then we can pretty much drop them anywhere. And it's not a problem of trying to find animals that need rescue. The key is finding the organizations that can accept them. And uh, that really is a challenge. Now, about a year or two into this, I started, and this goes to my orthopedic surgeon frame of mind, you know, where I like to control every component of every problem, every time. So I thought, you know, I'm kind of the horizontal component here. I need to control this vertically. I need to control the senders my flying the trip and the receivers. And you know what? It almost drove me crazy. I mean, I just, it was too much. It was just too much. So what Judy did initially and what Kara has done subsequently is that she'll hook up the senders and then identify the potential receivers and then match them up. So now we're typically flying the same routes over and over and over again which is good because the people get familiar with the practice. They know what to expect. It's not the first time we've flown into the airport. The FBOs, FBOs is an acronym for fixed base operator, which is kind of like the terminal or the gas station where we pull up and offload the animals. I mean, everybody knows who we are. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was flying down to Van Nuys and I'm on air traffic control and I called Joshua Approach. I said, Joshua, we'll approach, animal rescue flight 7, Papa Romeo, check in at 13.5. And the controller comes back and says, animal rescue flight, is that Dr. Rourke? And you never want the FAA to know you by your by your name. <laughs> you, always, you always want to be anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes. Uh, did I do anything wrong? And they said, no, we just heard your call sign. And all of us in the control room want to thank you for what you're doing. And it was, for me, it was a goosebumps thing. I mean, I'm not doing it for them, I'm doing it for the dogs. And we toiled for so long in anonymity for someone to to recognize what you're doing. It's really, it's an attaboy where you can really feel extra good about what you're doing. So I've been blabbing here a lot nonstop here. I want to give you a chance to ask your second question. <laughs>
0: thank you and your delight because because i got so much content so but anyway okay i do have a lot of specific questions based on what you said and this is in no sort of a random order but how tall are you five ten okay because this goes back to the seat (laughs) because the anecdote with the seat is important okay and then the thing that is just screaming in my head is it seems like you are so uniquely qualified for this based on your surgery experience my observation is that surgeons you know there's they're the take charge kind of people, and you. there's a certain persona about being a surgeon. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yes. And the first thing I want to touch on is doctors have such a terrible reputation as pilots, and I'm always quick to point out that I was a pilot who went to medical school. I first soloed an aircraft on my 16th birthday, got my license on my 17th, which is the minimum requirement for the FAA. And I was born and raised in New Jersey. And um, in New Jersey, you get your student driver's certificate or permit on your 17th birthday, and you can't get your license for two months. So I would tell, I already have my pilot's license. So I would tell people, hey, give me a ride to the airport, and I'll take you for a ride in the airplane. So I was, I was a pilot long before that. And I came to the fork of the road when I was in college. And I was wondering, well, do I fly for a living? You know, it's kind of fun, but the sciences really kind of they really got to me. And so I had the chance to go to med school, hopped on that, but always flew. I worked my way through medical school as a pilot, teaching flying, doing charter work, sightseeing tours over the Chesapeake Bay. I went to med school in Baltimore. So at any event, I was flying for a Mrs. Parlett out of outside of Annapolis at Lee Airport. And uh, it was right on the Chesapeake Bay.
0: Mrs. Parlett. A person?
1: Mrs. Parlett. That was the gal who hired me. And uh, she ran the flight school there and the sightseeing tour. And honestly, I couldn't believe how lucky I was. A, I was a little man on the totem pole. So they gave me all the nights and all the weekends, which was perfect being in med school. That was really the only time I had on. And I could schedule whenever I wanted. And the money just started flowing in. I'll tell you what, you can make a lot of money as a flight instructor earning six bucks an hour, which is what I was paid. And so I'm almost embarrassed to say I made even less as an intern two years later. <laughs> but uh, so I sat in the right seat for about a thousand hours teaching and doing all that. And you really learn a lot about flying and uh, flight teaching. My lessons really uh, came home then. And I forget the rest of your question. I mean, always. Well,
0: no, I think we'll get to the surgery part, but let's go back to this med school piece because I think that's interesting. So, you know, while you were pursuing your medical studies, you earned your cash. Some people work in restaurants, but you were a $6 an hour flight instructor in a small airport in Annapolis. And how did you balance studies and flying?
1: Well, you know, I learned in college not to cram. So what I would always do, I would always prepare for the lecture beforehand, and then I could sit back and take notes. And then I was always one step ahead of my classmates, or some of them anyway. And then the uh, night before an exam, for example, I would review my notes, have a glass of wine, go to bed early, and go in and take the exam refresh. And the rest of my classmates were cramming all night long, trying to get that last bit of information. So, you know, it's interesting. And with that, moving forward, I actually finished third in my class, which, you know, if I have to be honest about it, it was third from the bottom. But even so, uh, you know, the, the, the running joke is, I mean, what do you call the person who graduates from the very worst medical school in the United States at the bottom of his class? And the answer is you call him doctor. And at that point, orthopedics was not a very competitive field to get into, not the way it is today. It is the most competitive field because this is before we had CT scan, before MRI, before we had arthroscopy. None of that was available in orthopedics, but the whole nuts and bolts of it just fascinated me. I mean, I grew up with an erector set and playing with Legos and building things, taking the clock radio part and putting it back together. I mean, I like to do that. And I was also into the more of the instant gratification where you go in, you see the broken bone, you straighten it, you put a plate on it, some screws, wash it out, close it up and send it on its way. Of course, it also taught me patience because it takes some of those bones, like the femur, five months to heal. And so it's not as if you can just treat them and street them. Once you have a relationship with a major trauma or Long bone fracture. You're going to get to know this person pretty well. So um, I took that to my uh, approach to aviation, where you know you learn the little pieces, but I've always tried to be a concept learner. You learn the concept, and the pieces all kind of fall into place. And so I get aviation, I get medicine. One thing I don't get is women. So I'm, <laughs> but I don't. I don't think I'm alone there. I think that uh, most men are in the same boat. So I don't feel so unique in that fashion.
0: So let's pursue this a little bit in terms of what I'll call the OR mindset, which is there's, you know, there's a surgeon and they're in charge and it's their room and everything is to their orders. And it's, you know, there's a certain thing. It seems like that is incredibly good background prelude to what you're doing today.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because I ran a very sterile, operating room. If a patient asked me to be their surgeon, once I was in the operating room, it was all about the OR crew helping me help them. So I wouldn't let them play the radio, no music. They weren't talking about the movie they saw in the theater this past weekend. No jibber jabbering, no gossiping. And if they would occasionally get off on that tangent, I would just stop and say, now, please share with me, what does that have to do with this surgery? So I had a very strict approach in the operating room. I suffered no tomfoolery, and as a result my surgeries typically took a lot less time. And if you're if you're thinking about an operation and you have a fast surgeon and a slow surgeon, always go with the fast one. Your wounds open for a less period of time and they've already done the surgery in their head. They're not getting in there and thinking, "Okay, what shall I do next?" Now, when I'm dealing In the animal rescue, I'm dealing with, you know, a lot of different personalities and in a lot of different locations. And so I don't quite have that control over the what I used to have. But then again, I've also learned how to relax. And as we started our conversation and you asked me how I was, I said, best day of my life ever since my wife passed. Uh, I mean, every day is a gift. That's how I look at it. I try not to let things get under my skin anymore. The only thing that you can do to uh, really ruffle my feathers is to be tardy. And the rest of it, as long as you bring your A-game, it doesn't have to be my A-game. Uh, it just has to be your A-game.
0: You said that look. People don't They don't want to get the Peter Work look.
1: <laughs> That's exactly the look. <laughs> That's
0: exactly right. So tell me about the Roswell story. That seems like an important story in terms of the evolution of this, you know, sort of like tell it to me as a narrative.
1: Thank you for circling back to that,
0: because the first time I went to
1: Roswell and then they circled the aircraft with the fuel trucks so the media couldn't take pictures because they knew what they were doing in Roswell. They had like a three day hold. If you didn't pick up your dog in three days, the dog was boom, that was it. End of the road, and so that very first flight I did out of there, and I flew them from Roswell up to Denver to Centennial. It created a media circus. Now in Colorado, they love their dogs there. I mean, it's everybody has a dog. The dog is well taken care, of, and the dog sleeps on the bed with the owner, and that's the way it should be. And the gal who was running it met me, and she says, "My gosh." If all it took was an airplane flying some dogs out of Roswell, I would have bought an airplane years ago, because you have no idea how this is going to be a game changer. So I did a lot of flights out of Roswell. And then I'll tell you, one of the things that I don't miss about medicine is the politics. There's politics in everything. But medicine, you would think, my gosh, all these educated people, you would think they'd be over all the shenanigans. But no, it just gets worse especially if you're the guy, you've got the busy practice in town, you become everybody's target. But the same thing exists in animal rescue. So we kind of fell out of the relationship with Roswell and Colorado, and now it has shifted over to Hobbs, New Mexico. And there's a gal, Gina Beard and Amber Reed, who run two rescue groups right over the border in Texas and Denver City. And these girls are unbelievable. They are the picture of organization, the picture of caring. They are the epitome of animal rescue. So let me take this moment to point out that while I appreciate you helping me get the word out about what's necessary in animal rescue and how people can be part of the solution and how I'm playing my small role, the real heroes are the people who establish Uh, an organization that takes in the stray dogs, that work in those shelters every single day. They're not getting paid for this. This is absolutely a labor of love for them. And they go in there every single day. Sometimes they're looking at these dogs for months, cleaning out the stalls, changing the water, fresh fruit, grooming them, teaching, exercising them, teaching them how to walk on a leash, teaching them voice commands, getting them ready for their adoptive homes. And then same thing on the receiving end. Now they take the dogs in. Now they hang on to the dogs. There are now. It's a non-kill situation. Again, pardon the phrase, sorry. And they hang on to the dogs until they're adopted out. And most of these dogs then have to go through the spay and neuter because they won't hand them out or adopt them out without that. Because, I mean, that really is the center of the whole problem here. It's adopt, don't shop, and spay and neuter. I can't wait. For the day when Kara says, oh, my gosh, Peter, we don't have any more dog supply. I don't see that happening in the near future because people are people and people who are part of the problem. I mean, it's like Newton's law, you know, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. And uh, Newton's law of animal rescue, people who are the problem tend to stay part of the problem. because They just don't see themselves in that role
0: you touched on that i'd like you to elaborate when you were talking about texas where you said the basic two problems were economic and education issues
1: yeah there's a lot of free spay and neuter programs and i understand why some people don't get their dogs spayed and neutered because they don't have the time or they don't have the transportation or they're working three jobs trying to make ends meet but what i will not accept is somebody saying well i'm going to be intact i'm going to keep my dogs intact well Uh no, that's not being a good dog owner. And you just need to get over that. And culturally that exists to a large extent, especially in the South. I mean, they're not bad people. They just need to be educated to the how
0: they continue to be on the wrong side of the fence. So that's the education piece. What was the economic piece?
1: Well, they don't have a car to take them to the free vet clinic. Now, what they're doing in California, they're actually putting the spay and neuter clinics in a great big old van and driving them to the neighborhood and saying, we're going to be in this neighborhood from one to five, bring your dogs, don't feed them anything after midnight. And boom, they get them through. It takes only 15 minutes to get the thing done. But uh, that really is the solution to this.
0: Wow. That's sort of like the mobile library, the books on wheels. I hadn't heard that. That's cool.
1: (laughs) Interesting comparison. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You mentioned your flight hours are daylight savings only, so it's half a year. Well, how come?
1: Yeah, well, the days are longer for a longer flying day. Right. Plus, the winter weather starts coming in. I'm watching some snow start coming down outside in
0: Jackson right now. <laughs> in September 7th? No.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, we never know whether it's the last snow of the last season or the first snow of the next season. It snows every <laughs> month of the year here. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, winter weather, whenever there's icing in the clouds, it forms on the aircraft. The caravan has the icing equipment, but not anti-icing equipment. And if you pick up a load of ice in that aircraft, you're asking for trouble. And so safety first. We don't cancel many trips throughout the year because of weather. But our threshold is pretty low for canceling if that's going to be a concern. And I'll never criticize... Any of the three other guys who fly for me for saying, nah, I don't feel comfortable about doing that. I think that's good. You know, they say they're old pilots and bold pilots, but no old, bold pilots.
0: It's like when you go to some places in Asia and you're looking for a taxi driver, you want really old one. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's been around. Once. Yeah, exactly. So do they have the three pilots? Are they all volunteers as well or are they paid? All volunteers.
1: Yeah. It's just great. So it's Craig Colton, Brent Blue, and Jeff Carter.
0: What was the scariest flight you ever had? Well, I suppose
1: it involved weather. Yeah. You know, we're very cautious with the animals because unless we can see we can make it to our destination, we don't launch. Because the last thing we want to do is be stuck in Elko, Nevada with a hundred dogs in the back of the aircraft because we were grounded because of weather. I had a uh, flight out of Douglas, Wyoming last year or the year before. They were driving some pit bulls up from Texas to Seattle, and uh, somebody ran into the van, killed a couple of the dogs, put the drivers in the hospital. And I got a call from a friend of mine in Montana, and she said, Peter, did you hear about this car wreck or a truck wreck? I said, no. No. And she says, the dogs are stuck in Douglas and you need to go help them out. Julie Hopper is the one who called me. And I said, Julie, I've been flying straight for 10 days. I need a day off. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And I hung up and I'm thinking, Peter, what kind of person are you? So I immediately picked the phone back up. I said, Julie, if you can get in touch with them and they can organize it and they can be ready by tomorrow morning, I'll do the flight. So I did. I got up at O-Dark 30, flew down there, flew the dogs to Seattle, and I couldn't get in because of the weather. It was a low maritime thing, approach after approach after approach, and then ended up flying back over the Cascades where the weather was always nice. and Landing in Ellensburg or, or one of those cities, I can't remember. But it's uh, always flying those low, tight rescue flights that, um, you know, I don't do it for a living. And I'm a single pilot operation. So the guys who have, you know, more than one guy in the cockpit, and everybody helping, you know, that's really the way to do it. I actually had a former UPS pilot who flew 747s, you know, wanted to fly for me. But I could tell he was uncomfortable because he wasn't part of a team. He was a single guy. And so he wasn't used to loading the aircraft, doing the weight and balance, checking the weather, filing the flight plan, flying the airplane by yourself. And that's what our pilots have to do. So he didn't work out for you. You know, when he told me, he says, this is just not a good fit. And I appreciated his honesty about that. Because I was about to spend $10,000 on getting him trained and how to fly the caravan.
0: I was wondering if you had any commercial pilots when you posted that ad online, if you were getting, you know, people who flew 747s or flew commercial, but it doesn't sound like this is their cup of tea.
1: I'd rather have a civilian pilot who's flown forever by himself.
0: That he he's a one man show. So you said that you're there all by yourself. You don't have a co-pilot, but of course, dog is your co-pilot. Dog is my co-pilot, and uh, depending on
1: how packed we are, I'll even have dogs up in the front seat with me. And about twice a year, I'll have a dog break out of his crate and then wander up to the front seat. Yeah, I don't know how they get there because we have those crates stacked right to the ceiling, but they worm their way up, and they they just want to see what's going on or or maybe they want to see who's driving that thing.
0: You must have a funny anecdote about that. Yeah.
1: You know, one of my favorite photos is uh, CBS Sunday Morning did a piece on us and aired it about a month ago. The photo that they have, and it's on our website too, is when this dog broke out and I'm sitting there flying along and I'm feeling all this, you know, hot air on the back of my neck. And this dog is up there just panting on the back of my neck. And I look up and I see this guy, and I'm thinking, where the hell did you come from? So <laughs> I said, oh, i got to capture this. So I took out my phone and I took a selfie, and that's a picture that uh, CBS used for that. And they're all friendly. Honestly, these dogs are, they're kind of cherry-picked. The last thing a sending group wants to do is send to the receiving group a dog that has significant medical issues, or behavioral issues, because there are plenty of those. And honestly, I mean, I have enough behavioral issues. I'm not going to fault anybody for that, but at least mine are, are marginally controllable. But that's one way to sever a relationship to send a sick dog or a mean,
0: fighting dog. So most of the dogs are cherry-picked. They're the better-behaved, uh, more readily adoptable dogs. Right.
1: And we're not involved in that role. That's the sending and the
0: receiving group. I'm imagining that's pretty implicit, or do you explicitly tell the sending groups that, or do they kind of figure that out? Oh, they do that long before I got there. Yeah, okay. This is a good place to pause the conversation and take a break. But when we come back, a lot more with Peter Rourke. And now, a message from your dog. Oh, every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want to many beach days as possible i want to run i want to sniff Ooh, i want to find a good stick to carry oh i want to roll in the grass oh and warm my belly in the sun oh i want to walk with you run with you sleep with you eat with you and when i eat with you i want ever pop The green, grassy beef liver smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. It infuses any food you give me with healthy life vibrancy. I can feel it. Ever pup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement everpup is available in select pet shops and on amazon but to get the best price possible join the everpup club at everpupclub.com where you'll get your first jar for just eight dollars with free shipping anywhere in the u.s go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code dpn that is everpupclub.com everpup every day I know you do fly some cats, I hear. Yeah. So what's your ratio of dogs to cats?
1: Well, interesting. Cat is my dog pilot. Doesn't quite have the same ring. <laughs> <It> does not. <laughs> so it's about uh, 10 to 1.
0: Okay. And then I imagine that these are dogs who have been in a shelter for a while. What is it like? What do they sound like? Paint the picture for me what it's like when you start loading them into the plane because they've probably never seen a plane before.
1: Yeah, well, at first you made an interesting point about the dogs having been there for a while, because the last thing the shelter wants to do is ship a dog out where the owner's still looking for. Him. And they finally show up and they say, we hear you have our dog. And they say, oh yeah, he's in Seattle. <laughs> and this has happened. People will reach out to me and they say, you need to bring my dog back. I said, Honey, not my problem. <laughs> I said, it, "That's it, where there's it Alaska Airlines." <laughs> yeah, right. If we happen to be coming back that way, I'll do it. But we just don't have the resources for that. And to fly a dog like eight hour, one dog. I mean, when you're, it costs five hundred bucks an hour to run the aircraft. I said, I don't think so. So, and anyway, when the dogs first arrive at the airport, they're making a lot of noise. They're getting to know each other. They're barking. May you know, it's a mayhem. Put them in the airplane, they're barking, and we always load them so the crates are all facing aft, so they're not looking at each other, you know, know, being all manly and everything. But once the door is shut, and once I spin the turbine and the engine starts, they get very, very quiet. You have to understand these dogs have been through a lot. And now here's a new sound for them, and they don't know what it is, and they don't know if it's going to hurt. And so it probably shocks them a bit. Aircraft starts moving. Then it gets a little bit louder as I add the power. And then once we get up to altitude, most of these dogs really are sea level dogs. Above 10,000 feet, they're starting to get a little sleepy. Uh, Keep in mind that the average airline cabin is pressurized to about 7,000 feet. And even then, a lot of people will get sleepy. FAA says the pilot doesn't have to wear oxygen until twelve five. And you don't even have to supply oxygen for your passengers until 15. And even then, they don't even have to use it. So we typically fly between 11 and 13,000 feet, sometimes a little higher over the Rockies because some of those peaks are 14 five. But for the most part, we'll try to fly around them. It's not a good thing to try to fly through them. And then as we start the descent, they start waking up again below 10,000 feet, and they start making noise.
0: So you rely on the altitude to help uh, put them to sleep a little bit, quiet it down.
1: That, and one thing that I've always noticed in my dogs is that uh, they always want to be with me. They want to go for a road trip. They want to, even if I'm going to the grocery store or go check the mail or, or whatever, they get in the car. And what do they do? The first thing they do is lie down in the back. I'm thinking, I yell at and I said, you could do that at home. I mean, why do you have to do that in the car? But they just like being there. And that's what these dogs do in their crates. They lie down and they go to sleep. And so occasionally we'll have a rookie out there who's helping a new volunteer with the sending group. And they're just, you know, they're chirping in the back. There's not enough room in that crate. The dog is in. It. He's not getting enough air. You know, they're, they're, you know, like this is my first rodeo, but the airlines have a requirement that. The dog's fully standing and then four inches on top from their head or from the tips of their ears. Well, we can't afford that luxury. And then we know that the dogs are going to be lying down. So a shorter crate is always better because it allows us to stack more crates on top of that. And the other thing that this person doesn't understand is if they have room to turn around in the crate comfortably, I'm good with that. And they can all stand up. We see to that. But the third thing is they don't have enough air. I'm breathing the same air they are. I mean, I mean <laughs> dog farts and all. I mean, it just, we're all sharing. I mean, that's all there is to it.
0: This is not smell-o-vision, but I imagine it's rather fetid with 100 dogs and you in a small space.
1: Well, as an orthopedic surgeon, I do know that there are worse smells, but it's like a gram-negative abscess. Ooh, boy. And it's pretty good for probably about the first three hours. But uh, going on hour four and hour five towards the end of the play, these dogs are they're starting to let go. And, you know, you almost wish you had them at home that you could blame it on, on the dogs instead of yourself. <laughs> so, And they'll make messes in the crate on occasion. But it is what it is. You know, when we're on voting at the receiving groups, no, it's just poop. It's just pee. I mean, we're not dressed in tuxedos. We're dressing clothes that are going to get dirty. You're going to get pee and poop on it. And you're going to get covered in dog hair, especially with the Huskies. Oh, here's an interesting fun fact. I think I'm the only one in on the planet and maybe you haven't seen it, but I didn't watch Game of Thrones. I just never got into it. I watched the first episode and they had these flying dragons spinning fire. And I thought, no, nah. you know, I'm more interested in. Realistic shows like Star Trek with teleporters. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So everyone went out and got a Husky because they had a wolf or something in the show. And they had no idea. High exercise. A lot of grooming. They're voyagers. They take off at the drop of a hat, require an incredible amount of work. And they raise them as a puppy. They get to be a year or two old and they just can't handle it anymore. When, in fact, it's not a failure of the dog, it's a failure of the people. So they take them off to the shelter, and we've been flying dozens and dozens of huskies. And they're kind of the messiest dogs in the aircraft, because by the time they get into the shelter and they've been in there for a while, they haven't been groomed for a while. And so there's hair all over the
0: place. Wow. So talking about topical things, obviously, you know, the um, Game of Thrones, that. Maybe we'll go out and get Huskies. How has COVID impacted what you do? It grounded us in the
1: beginning of this year. And, you know, it's interesting you say that. It's not that COVID grounded us. It was the human reaction to the presence of COVID. And there are rational responses and there are irrational responses. And as a physician, I'm not smarter than the average bear. I'm just more educated in that area. And so I know what the risks are and what they are not. But what a lot of people felt, and we saw this happening in Portland, for example, the word was out that the animals are transmitting COVID. So people were abandoning their pets. Well, that's got to be pretty high on my stupid list. And so the receiving groups stopped receiving. They wanted to make sure that they weren't going to be at risk. They wanted to protect their volunteers, which all made sense to me even though it was an irrational response. So normally we start flying in the middle of March. We didn't start flying in earnest probably about the 1st of May. And now we're six weeks behind. And uh, so fortunately, I had just brought on the three new pilots. And honestly, by the time I was done with them, they were shaped like the seat in the airplane. (laughs) We were flying six, seven days a week making up for the backlog. And there were still groups that wouldn't accept animals because they were very concerned about it. And I mean, I would offhand call them COVIDiots because it's not the dog's fault. They can take all the precautions they want. We'll take all the precautions that you want us to take to get the dogs there safely. But just understand that this problem didn't go away.
0: Do you have any veterinarians as part of your team? We do not. You do not. No. Okay. So your team is basically your executive director, you and your pilots.
1: It's the Karen and Peter show and three guys who helped me out.
0: Yeah. Tell me the story about your genius daughter who said, dad, you need a bigger plane. It'll somehow you'll figure it out. How did it work out? Obviously you got the plane, but you mortgaged your home. What happened?
1: I mortgaged my home and uh, I spoke with my accountant. How do we structure this? Because. The IRS wants us, they have specific rules about a nonprofit and borrowing money and you can't loan money to a nonprofit at a 0% interest rate or. So we set up a 30 year fixed loan at 3%, you know, at the airplane. I don't think the airplane will last that long, but that's how we started. So that leads to about $4,200 a month in our mortgage payment on the aircraft. And at the time, that really was 25% of our budget. That's a big chunk for a piece of equipment. So honestly, what was happening is that I would donate the money to the nonprofit. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. Craig Covert, my accountant, I mean, he is tough. He keeps me on the straight and narrow. He says, Peter, you can't be doing that. So Craig, this is what I was doing. I was donating the money and whatever dog is my co-pilot did with it. I mean, what do I know? But then suddenly that same amount was being paying off the mortgage. So it worked out pretty well. Now over these last four and a half years that we've had the aircraft, we've had more donations coming in. It's become a smaller portion of our budget because we're flying more. So it's uh, become less of an issue. But what I did, I sold off some some other long-term assets that I had to help retire my personal debt and the nonprofit still has a personal debt to me and actually I had a gal Cheryl Bressler just an absolute sweetheart step up and say I recognize how this can really cripple an organization I'm going to go out and try to raise some money for you with the understanding that any money I raise only goes towards paying down the debt and I said hey (laughs) anything you raise you know we're good with. So thank you. And she's been aggressively pursuing that. And it's been helpful.
0: What is your annual budget? Right now, it's about $350,000 a year. Now, you said that for the longest time, you were sort of in anonymity. And then all of a sudden, I guess the media started getting attention. How did that happen? And what are some of the things that have resulted from the interest of your story?
1: Well, we would occasionally get the person from the local newspaper come out and write a human interest story, or in this case, an animal interest story. And it would never go beyond the town boundaries or the county. And so that was it. Sometimes the local TV stations would come out, local markets. And it's interesting, we really never saw any kind of response from that in terms of people going to our Facebook page, hitting our like button, or Lord knows donating money. And the social media is a very strong medium, and we have about 20,000 followers on Facebook, and whenever we would do a, hey, this is our 10,000th animal, let's raise $10,000, and here's the donate button, and 15,000 would hit the like button, and 50 would hit the donate button. And I understand, I mean, charity begins at home, but there's a lot of discretionary income out there that people are spending on their Starbucks, on their cell phone, on their cable bill. I mean, you can always squeeze something out for a good deed. A couple of years ago, Connor Knighton with uh, CBS Sunday Morning approached us and said, I just heard about what you guys are doing from a friend of mine, and I would love to do a piece on you. And we said, "Um, okay, you just tell us when. So he went back to New York and They said, oh, we just did a piece on cats and shelters in Hawaii. The last thing we need is another animal piece. And so Connor says, "Yeah, we're not going to do it. And then every year he would just touch base with us. How are you guys doing? You know, thinking about you. And then about two months ago, he called and said, I think we can get this done. So we did the piece, filmed it in El Paso, Salt Lake City, Sun Valley. and Troutdale in Portland area. And uh, he's just the nicest guy. Oh my gosh. So at the end of the interview, he said, well, I'm going to send it back to be edited. We'll see what they can do. It probably won't air for a couple months. So I'll give you a heads up. And then he calls us about 10 days later and he said, they loved it. New York is going to be on next weekend. And we went, wow. Okay. And of course, you never know how they're going to cut the piece. You don't have editorial control. So I was just as curious as the next person on how it would come out, because I didn't get any forewarning or advanced view or, or anything. The first time I saw it, then it was aired on CBS. So it was aired. They had a couple stories. They had a story about Dana White. They had a story about an archer who was born without limbs. And they had the story of Dog is My Co-Pilot. The nice thing is that they actually had me on before Vanna White, which I thought was terrific. So they aired our segment around 7.35 or 7.40 in the morning, 40 minutes in the program. And one minute later, our email blew up. We were getting 250 emails an hour, 300 an hour, uh, uh, over 1,000 coming in. People donating, donating, donating. And I thought, oh, my gosh. My poor executive director, who's going to have to straighten all this out because she does all that stuff. And I said, Kara, you don't have to fly the airplane. You just have to do everything else. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, fortunately, she has some administrative help with some uh, contract work that we have. So we're pretty much on top of it. But that was really helpful in getting the word out. And then, boom, everybody wanted to. Talk with us, and actually, I think you actually made contact with us before that was air, so you were in before it was in, so and I appreciate that.
0: Well, I think this is a fascinating story, as you can tell. so after you got some of that media and CBS and The Washington Post and things like that, did you see an increase in your donations? significant Measurable. It was a tsunami. it really was,
1: and honestly, I love those ten dollar donations. It takes a lot of them. But these are people who can't afford the $10,000 donations. Mm -hmm. And believe me, I like the $10,000 donations, too. don't get me wrong. But these are people who are just absolutely given from the heart. And it comes in all different denominations and all different value amounts. And uh, none of them is more important than the one that that individual sends in.
0: I've heard you say that you like to support, but you also encourage people to support their local dog shelter.
1: Yeah. My mother always raised me charity begins at home and the local facilities really could use your help. And really there are four things that your listeners can do that they know they're out there. They just haven't maybe heard them in order, but they can go out and adopt a dog, really adopt on chop. And remember that Every animal that you save, saves two. The one that you save and the one that takes its place. Now, I've adopted three. So in that way, I've saved six, I suppose. If you can adopt, or if you don't want to commit to it, a foster dog. Get it ready for the adoptive home. And it really takes about two or three weeks for a foster dog to kind of settle in. Remember, they've had a very sketchy life, and they're not going to be very trusting right off. And so it, it takes a while and a lot of patience. But there are some people who live in a place where they're not allowed to have animals, and I get that. But that doesn't mean you can't go to the shelter and volunteer your time, clean out those stalls, help the people who are working there, change the water, feed them, groom them, uh, socialize them, exercise them, walk them on a leash. And if you can't do any of that, skip that one cup of double shot uh, macchiato. What, I don't even know what they're called. You know, I go into a coffee shop, I uh, say, I want a black coffee. And they say, Do you want that vente? I said, if That means fast. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. I would refuse to give the names like, I want a medium. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right. That's how I roll. So, yeah, skip that cup of coffee, make one at home, and donate to your local shelter. And if there's anything left over, we could sure use the help. We still run in the at dog as my co-pilot. We've got a uh, huge expense coming up this fall with the overhaul of our turbine engine. All you turbine pilots out there know what I'm talking about. You know, it's middle six figures kind of thing. So... We've been trying to budget for that. We don't have it all completely covered. And, and that's on top of our monthly budget with, you know, we're spending $60,000, $70,000 a month on jet fuel. alone. But that's a good thing. It means we're flying. It means we're saving dogs.
0: If you could dream, would you want a bigger plane that would enable you to fly year-round? You know, with that comes expense. I'm saying if you could dream. Oh. Like how big is your dream?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to have an all-weather aircraft. Speaking of Roswell, you fly into Roswell. That's where they dump all the aircraft from the airlines when they're getting too old to fly. I'll just take one of those seven forty sevens and we'll just load that baby up and I, you know, talk about a lot of stops. But there are some aircraft that are a little bit larger than what we have that would fill our role, but uh, we just don't have the, the money for it.
0: So you have three dogs of your own. Tell me about your dogs. Yeah.
1: I have Miss Tia, Mr. Bear, and Mr. Hobbs. Tia was a fully trained service dog I got out of Roswell, New Mexico. Her person died. The family hated the dog, took her to the pound to be euthanized. So one of the rescue folks pulled her from the shelter, fostered her until they could get her on a flight. And she was on my flight, and I dropped her off in Salt Lake City. and. Um, Kara said, you know, you have number 4000 on that flight today. I said, well, great. She says, well, have them pull a dog out and get a picture with number 4000. Now, of course, I had a hundred dogs on the airplane. I, who knows which one was number 4000? But they pulled out this Queensland healer and she came out and she started snorting and she baring her teeth and sitting on my, you know, this is, she's a grinner. And most dogs, people think that when dogs bear their teeth, they're being aggressive. And she was just being a lover. She sat on my feet and I lost a dog a couple months before. And I said, baby, you're coming home with me. I'm sorry. And so uh, the dog hadn't been cleaned by any adopted family. So I just brought her home. And then the next dog I brought home was uh, Mr. Hobbs. He was a chocolate lab, got him out of Hobbs, New Mexico. Not after Calvin and Hobbes. People say, oh, yeah, Calvin and Hobbes. I go, no, Hobbes, New Mexico. He was a stray. And interesting backstory on him. He was picked up as a stray. He was chipped. They had him scanned. They called the owner and they said, we don't want him back. Hmm. Well, I didn't know all this, that until later. So they posted the picture. Gina Beard posted the picture. And I thought, oh, good looking chocolate lab. I've had a, a white lab, a black lab. Why don't I try a chocolate lab? So I went down, met him on my way down to El Paso. No, out of uh, San Antonio for a rescue flight and picked him up on the way back. And um, the dog seemed really mellow at the time. But what I didn't know when he was picked up, he was covered in ticks and there's a tick-borne bacterial disease and it really makes him sick. So he wasn't really feeling that well. But by the time I got him home, he was feeling really well. And the first thing he did was he walked in and he marked every piece of furniture in my house. He had no voice commands. He wasn't housebroken. wasn't leash trained. He was a Voyager. He had food issues. I mean, it was a real challenge. And people are always reaching out to me and say, "Oh, I'm looking for and you know fill in the blank in terms <laughs> of the breed." And I said, "You know what? What you need to do is find the dog that you're going to want nearby, foster the animal for a couple of weeks, and make sure it's a good fit. Because if it's not," They really expect about a third of these animals to come back because it just didn't work out. And then it's a no harm, no foul kind of thing. So I'm up in Montana now with this dog at my lake house. The dog came from Hobbs, to Mexico. I'm on the Canadian border. This dog came from the Mexican border. And I'm thinking, now, how would this look if I returned the dog because it wasn't a good fit? I said, not good marketing. <laughs> so I worked with him. And now he is the best dog ever best dot 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 dog dot 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 ever and he is he's just terrific and he just wants to please my third dog is uh, is a rescue that my son had a golden retriever that uh, when he moved and couldn't keep the dog asked me to foster the dog and that was a couple years ago so I think that dog is staying with me matter of fact I'm not giving him up And that's Bear. She's just a sweetheart, as all Goldens are.
0: Do any of the dogs fly with you ever? Uh, No,
1: because, you know, for them to sit in an airplane that's kind of noisy and and it would take up room for dogs I'm trying to rescue. So I've got a a full-time caretaker who lives on my property at my lake house in Montana. So they never have to leave home. They live out in the woods. They get to go swimming. and, And she takes care of them when I'm gone.
0: What do you think about when you're flying?
1: Uh mostly playing sudoku, trying to stay awake. Honestly, people think, oh, flying, oh, it's so beautiful. It is the most boring and sedentary job you can imagine. I fly the same places over and over and over and over and over and over again. So there's there's really nothing new, which is good. You want things to be a routine and very straightforward. But I have an ADF, Air, Air Directional Finder, and I can pick up AM radio on that and listen to you know a lot of country restaurants out here, listen to the music, and just watch the world kind of go by. Now, the caravan might be a big plane, but at least it's slow. <laughs> so I've got a lot of time to do it. But you have to understand, it's three times as fast as a van on a highway. So we're getting there a lot more efficient
0: you mentioned that your mom taught you that all charity begins at home. Let's go back to your childhood. When did you realize that you love dogs? And when did you realize you love flying? Age three and age four. I was raised with
1: dogs. By the time I was four, you know, this was the heyday of the new jet age and stuff. My favorite TV show was a Saturday morning serial, Sky King. I would just love that program and never missed it. The very first time I got a library card, I went right to the library and checked out the picture book, How to Fly an Airplane. And I kept renewing it, renewing it. And so I always want to do that. So I begged my parents for flying lessons. And so for my 12th birthday, they gave me gave me a flying lesson. And I had to take it sitting on a couple of telephone books because I couldn't see (laughs) over the pan. And then for my 13th birthday, my mother gave me a pilot's watch. And I still wear it when I fly. Really? Yeah. And it's uh, turned out to be quite a collector's item. Who knew? And then my father had just left the military. Uh, He was in the Coast Guard. And he was looking for something new. And I said, you know, take flying lessons, take flying lessons, anything I could do. So he started taking flying lessons. I started taking flying lessons. We took ground school together. For the FAA written exam, and uh, we did a lot of flying over the years together. He was uh, quite the accomplished pilot. So then I kept at it in earnest, and the uh, kind of ramped it up right for the two months before my 16th birthday, when I knew my target was the solo on my 16th, and then kind of ramped it up before my 17th birthday because I knew I wanted to take my uh, flight test for my uh, private pilot's license on my 17th birthday. So that all worked out. So. I've been flying in my head a long time.
0: If the old you could see the new you, what would the old you say?
1: Now that he's out of medicine, he's sleeping a lot better. He's reminded of the old visual of the frog in the pan of water that you put on the stove. And the water slowly heats up. And the frog doesn't recognize the difference because it happens so slowly. So he doesn't jump out of the pan the same thing occurs in medicine with the level of stress in your life. You enter it really not knowing what you're getting into because no one really does. And you're put in that pan of water and slowly that stress rises and rises. And the more successful you are, the more stress there is. And you don't even know it until it's gone. And it takes you months for it to kind of, Get out of your system. And I was battling two things at that time. I was battling the loss of my wife. And uh, at the same time, losing the stress of practicing medicine. So one kind of negated, I didn't really get to enjoy the less stress right away. I see that now. And uh, the other old, old me would be proud of how I was able to put my life back together. After I thought that was it, I wasn't thinking about suicide or anything like that. I just didn't know what was next. I mean, for those of you who've experienced grief, and it's different for everybody, you can't breathe. You're trying to get through the next minute. You just if I can only get through the next minute, maybe I can get through the next one. You don't even think about what's around the corner. As time goes by, you're trying to get through the next hour. and Then it's the next day. Then it's the next week. Then it's the next month. and But it never leaves you. It's always in the back of your mind. It's always there. But when that friend of mine called me and said, Meg would want me to be happy, and I started doing the rescue flights, and then I met Sharon, that's really kind of when it all came together. So it was my dog rescue efforts that, really brought me out of it. And so really, you know, I'm saving them. And when in fact, I mean, the the secret is that they are the ones who saved me. And I recently, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Washington Post article because the other evening I was reading the comments at the end of the Washington, and some of them were really funny. And some of them, you know, you wonder, these people should never leave the house. So in any event, one person... Talked uh, was very negative. You know, with that money, he could be feeding the, you know, the hungry, housing the homeless, and, you know, and it's, the next 50 just jumped on her. I mean, it was just awesome. And uh, one of the people said, you know, you should be saving people. What are you talking about? He is saving people. And until I read that, I didn't see that final piece that the same thing that saved me is probably saving thousands of other people in that same way where they're getting that rescue animal, they're bringing it home. And they didn't know that they had that piece missing until it was filled. And so that was, that was moving for me to see that.
0: That sounded like an epiphany.
1: It was, it, it was, and that was just as recent as a couple of days ago. I mean, they keep happening. So it was a good thing.
0: It strikes me, you know, on a commercial flight, when the closing up the door, or the flight attendant tells the pilot there are hundred souls on board, which I've always thought was a very interesting term. Do you think of it the same way when you think I have a hundred souls behind me? That's how I file
1: my flight plan. When you file a flight plan, you get the, you know, the aircraft equipment, your airspeed, your time of departure, your rat of flight, your time of destination, the amount of fuel on board, the color of the aircraft, the pilot's information, and souls on board. And I always fill it out with the number of passengers that I have, including myself.
0: <laughs> In the
1: yeah, and that's when I identify it as an animal rescue flight.
0: That is great. I love that.
1: And so when I'm with air traffic control. Everybody knows, especially with the flights that I'm flying over and over again, the air traffic controllers who have spoken with me before, they'll always ask me, how many you have on board today? I'm looking for a Portuguese water dog. Do you have any of those? Or or whatever. And I said, well, you know, when they get to the airport, they're in crates. I see their faces, can't really tell what I have, but I'm happy to leave them all at your house.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, Peter, this has been amazing. I went way over the time and you've been incredibly generous with all the amount of time you, you spent on this call. I thank you so much. Thank you
1: for, again, your part of the solution and uh, helping us get the work.